0: Well, Matthew chapter 3 is going to be the starting point, the launching point of our message today. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done for we must carry out all that the God, all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him after his baptism. As Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. In verse 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. God said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Now it is my assignment today to teach on, I know who I am. I know who I am. In this passage, we see the beginning point of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the amazing thing about it is how long we had to wait for it. From the first messianic prophecy in Genesis 315 that says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the birth of our Lord is some four thousand years. And then after that we had to wait another thirty years. At the age of 12, though, we get a small glimpse of who Jesus is. One day, he and his mom and dad and family made a trip all the way to the temple. And so after they were finished worshiping and doing what they did back then, the family went back home. They get all the way back home, and mom and dad, all they had, they didn't have Jesus with them. All they had was the little children's church sticker that you get when you check in people, right? Check in kids. And so, as a mom and dad, they were like, oh, what are we going to do now? We got to go back and get him. So they made the three-day three day journey all the way back to the synagogue. And when they walk in, what do they find? They find a 12, their 12-year-old 12 son talking to the adults. Their 12-year-old son talking to the theologians. And mom and dad are like, hey, man, what, what young man, what are you doing? And he, all he could say was, I had to be about my father's business. So he goes back home. And some 18 years of silence go by before we see Jesus again. One day he pops up at his cousin John's church. It's called the River Church. Some of you got that. <laughs> so the, the whole church is out there and, 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 and they're fellowshipping, but John is baptizing people because that's his name, John the Baptizer, right? He's baptizing one and he gets another one and another one comes down, comes in the water, he baptizes another. After a few baptisms, he looks up and he sees Jesus and he said, That's him. That's the one that I've been talking about. Now, you have to understand where John is a little excited. See, he had to go through a long, hard road of ministry because people were not agreeing with him what he was saying about Jesus. But you see, that day when when John walked into the water, he thought back to the first time that he and Jesus met. You see, when John was in Elizabeth's tummy, when she was pregnant with John, and and Mary was pregnant with Jesus, they were in the same room together. And when they got close, Elizabeth felt this little, woo little kick. Now, it, it wasn't a kick of, my baby's hungry. It was a kick of prophetic destiny. You see, that day, John's in his mom's tummy, and he says, the Messiah is here. The one who's going to come and set the captives free, he's in the room right now. The one who's coming to save the sinners, the one—the ones who are struggling, he's in the room right now. So as Jesus enters the water, John says, uh-uh. You you need to be baptizing me. We got this all wrong. Jesus said, no, we have to do this. It's what all the Old Testament prophets have been talking about. If we don't do this, we're calling Jeremiah a liar. If we don't do this, we're calling Isaiah a liar. If we don't do this, then what was the Old Testament for? An interesting point here is that before Jesus started his earthly ministry, he submitted himself to another man's ministry. And I think that should be a lesson for us who desire to do great things. Amen. So he baptizes Jesus and something really amazing happens. Now, when we have baptisms here on Wednesday nights, a lot of cool things happen. And, 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 and a common thread that happens is we might have 12 or 15 people on the list to be baptized. But Pastor Todd usually gives a, a like a little altar call at the end to say, hey, if, if anybody else wants to be baptized, we the, the water's here. I can't tell you how many people have come in their street clothes and come and make their way up the steps and they get baptized. Amazing but it wasn't that special because in what, what what happened with Jesus is it was something powerful. See, when we have our baptisms, people don't hear. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And and nobody on these nights, they, they don't hear that. And another thing, we don't even see birds. But what happened to Jesus in verse 17 is powerful. Because right here, Jesus affirms, or God affirms Jesus and he validates him. He says, This is my son in whom brings me great joy. And this is the same God, the same God. This is what he does for us when we are reconciled to him. He says, I'm pleased in you. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Jesus says, don't go out and try to prove yourself and and get everything right. I've done it all for you. Jesus doesn't say, well, look, we're going to give them a year. If they make it through the Love Girl Reach classes, okay, we'll give them a check mark. If they read two chapters in their Bible in a year, we might give them a half a check mark. If they attend about... Ten services in a row. Whoa, that's pretty big. We'll give them. No, Jesus doesn't do that, does he? But today he's telling us as we embark on a new year, you're my child and I'm pleased with you. And you know why he settles this first? Because when we know our identity, we can walk in comfort. We can be relaxed. And we can also be confident in knowing who we are. Amen. I'm his and he is mine. Today, I want to give you three points. To the assignment. And if you're taking notes, the, uh, the, the title is I know who I am. And then underneath that. It's this, it says, when I know who I am, comma, I will not be dot, dot, dot. Now, you would think. That after the best baptism Ever. That Jesus would start and go on with his ministry. You would think that there would be a line for lepers and he would just heal them. There'd be a line for the lame and he would would heal them. There'd be a line of caskets coming down and he'd pop them open and resurrect them with that power that he's got. You know what I'm saying? But something on the contrary happened. And we pick up in chapter 4 where the Holy Spirit says, Jesus, we, we need to have a little appointment here. There's going to be some some training that needs to be done. And so we pick up in chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became hungry, very hungry. During that time the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Now, right there, Satan didn't say, If you can do miracles... What did the Father just do? He affirmed Him and He validated Him. What did Satan come to do to discredit Jesus? I've got to tell you this right now. That Satan cannot take away the giftings God has given you. Satan cannot take away the authority that God has given you. And Satan cannot even touch the power that God has given you. But what he can do is go after your identity. What he can do is discredit your identity. You see, when that happens, we'll do awesome things for God, but in the wrong way. We'll pursue God. We'll we'll, we'll come to prayer and fasting meetings. But there's just something inside of us that it's like we're in a spiritual quicksand, and we can't move forward. And we just simply become ineffective. And the bottom line is, we can't answer the question, what's my identity? So Satan says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no. There's an exclamation point right there. No, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. When I know who I am, I will not be performance driven. When I know who I am, I will not be performance driven. How does Satan try to discredit Jesus? He tries to to get him to perform. He says, look, I, I want you to take these stones and make them something else. Jesus said, I don't have to prove anything to you, Satan. Because my father just approved of me. You see, when we know that, we can rest in that. But when we don't know that is where we struggle. You just simply run around day after day trying to prove yourself, try, trying to prove yourself to your spouse, maybe your boss, maybe people that you work with. You see, what he'll do is he'll try to de- he'll deceive you to try to take take one thing and make it something else. Let me give you a great example. You ask any man about his identity, what does he default to? His job. Why do we do that? Because we're comfortable in that. He'll talk about the years that he's been with the company, he'll talk about all of his accomplishments, maybe how many people he supervises, maybe even his sales quota that he met right before Christmas, and now he can buy his wife a big old juicy fat diamond ring. You ask any mother that, and what does she default to? I'm the mother of three, and I keep a pretty mean house. And there's an and, you know, when you talk about moms. And I bake cookies every Friday night for my daughter's pep squad. And whatever my husband lacks in, I pick up the slack. Life is full of duties. We know that, right? But when our identity is wrapped into our duties, our performance, we go down a road of nothing but troubles, because all we're doing is searching to excel at it so that we can be superior to someone else. You know what it leads to? It leads to overcommitments. It leads to being a perfectionist. I got to tell you what happened at the first service. At the first service, I went and got my own podium back there and I knocked over that wall and it just started like a domino effect. It knocked over everything. Now, the old me would have said, oh, my gosh, I'm a failure. I don't care. And I put it way over here. And so when I went and sat down and got the communion, I realized that, man, between this piece of molding and that, it's not even. I don't care that anymore. Amen. But it will lead to having a perfectionist spirit. It will even lead to for us to, like, always want to go get the best job and keep job hopping. Amen. It will also lead to becoming obsessed with mastering it. I got to interject this, man. When I came on staff here about 10 years ago, um, people needed counseling. And so I jumped into that role real quick. And so people walked in and I gave them what I thought they needed to, to hear. And at the end, I said, okay, well, let's make an appointment for next week. Okay, great. They weren't coming back. If you want to dismantle a church and drive people away, go see Rob. He'll do it. And man, I thought I was a failure, man. I was like, okay, well, the next person just, why am I counseling? So what did I do? So I'm going to master that thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show them people. They're going to come back. If I got to go to the house and drag them and bring them and tackle them and tie them to a rope and put them to the chair, you're staying. You're coming back because I'm going to give you, you know. Well, what did I do? I ordered books. And, man, they were thick books. They were like this thick. That thick, man. Book after book. I joined the AACC MOU SE organization. Man, they would send me daily, like not devotionals, but daily things, helpmates, everything I could get, CDs, DVDs. Man, I was going to master that thing, right? Because I was performance driven. That's where my identity was. And then somebody, somebody real wise, like our senior pastor, said, Rob, maybe your approach is wrong. Hmm, that's a thought. And then the Lord started dealing with me, and I thought, Okay, why, Lord? Why aren't they coming back? Well, I wasn't relying on the Holy Spirit to give me counsel. I was relying on books and CDs. And that's all great. You understand that. You know what I'm saying? But that was my identity. I wanted to master that thing. I became obsessed with it. Let me tell you this. If your identity as a person is rooted in what you do, performance, you will always misdefine yourself. So how do we overcome being identified as performance-driven? Here it is, very simple. Consider the reference point. Rob, what are you talking about? You see, the reference point is the day of your salvation. It's the day that you say yes to Jesus Christ. Because on that day, your sins were wiped away. They, they, they were literally erased like a wipe-off board. They were no more. Amen. See on that day something very miraculous happened. Not only did we receive Jesus and receive eternal life, but if we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22, oh my goodness. And he has identified us as his own. We are no longer identified in the old way. Amen. That we have now been grafted in and our, we have a new identity. But sometimes we don't even recognize that. It says, we've now been identified as His own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything He has promised us. What did He promise us? I'm glad you asked that. Because it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He's a new creature. He's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come in. But what happens is we get on this road of the spiritual walk. By the way, I'm not going to fall off. Don't be scared. But anyway, you go down this line and you're doing your thing, right? You're living life. You get saved and it's like a little speed bump and you just keep going on and on and on. And you look back and go, oh, I'm just a little speed bump. No, we got to look. This is the reference point. That speed bump. Amen. It was the day that you said yes to Jesus Christ, because on that day, that day you became a new creation in him. In fact, we received a new nature. I want to show you that. In 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What was Peter saying here? What was the divine nature? The divine nature is the very core of life, life in him. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, it's not just a little speed bump that day of salvation. Now, it might have been that you walked down the aisle. Maybe you heard a a TV, maybe a Billy Graham crusade. Maybe you were driving in your car when you said, I need a savior in my life. It is not just a little speed bump. We've got to go back to that reference point and say, on that day, I'm identified with Him. I'm a new creation. Amen? Old things have passed away. The old man is gone, so stop spending time at the cemetery. We have to consider The reference point. By the way, it was ridiculous on Satan's part to tell Jesus to go change the stones into bread. Because Jesus is the stone and he is the bread. You big dummy. When I know who I am, I will not be performance driven. Second temptation in Matthew chapter 4, we continue in verse 5. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, uh-oh, if you are the son of God, he's trying to discredit him again. He says, jump off. For the scriptures say, now we've got to stop right there. I've got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, Satan knows scripture. Because he just said, for the scriptures say. He says, he orders his angels to protect you and they will hold you with their hands to keep you from striking your foot on a stone. He's quoting scripture. Now I got to, I got to interject a little, a little nugget here. Okay. This is where the children of God get in doctrinal error. They will go and grab one scripture and not hold it up to anything else. Because that's exactly what Satan did. He was quoting Psalm 91. Because he said, And they will hold you with their hands to keep you from striking your foot on a stone. The big dummy in Psalm 91, the next verse says, And you will, you will literally trample on the lion and the serpent. You big dummy. Using scripture against Jesus, because he is scripture. You see, Satan only wants to give you enough Scripture to mess you up. Take that one Scripture, run with it, run with it. You know, don't balance it with anything else. Just hold on to it, you know, and then use it when you feel like you want to. Point number two, when I know who I am, I will not be prideful. When I know who I am, I will not be prideful. He says, go way up there and jump off. Michael's coming. Gabriel's coming. And a bunch of other angels. I don't know all their names, but they're coming. They're coming. Jump off, man. You got this. The world is yours. Hmm. Show them who's boss. Pride and arrogance come in when we try to jump off things. And think everything's okay and we got it. Can I show you the real root of pride? And it's found in Psalm 10.4. It says, In His pride the wicked does not seek Him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. Right there, boom, we can go home. That is the root of pride when we say, "Mm, No, there's no more room for God. When we try to take credit for things, when really the credit goes to Him. We'll take the glory for things. When it really belongs to Him. And you know what happens? We begin to overcompensate. Let me give you some examples of overcompensating. When pride comes in, we we begin to overcompensate and we live our life through our children and their accomplishments. And everything is about them and what they have done. We live life and, 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 and overcompensate in our appearance. Ever heard of Botox? Remove, add, remove, add, remove, add. Maybe the skills that we have, we overcompensate. Maybe where we live, maybe we can get a little prideful. Maybe the money we make, maybe the degrees we have behind our name. Maybe where we went to school. How smart we are. And here's a biggie, religious pride. The church we attend. My church is better than yours. Mm. I've seen this, man. People will get into a boxing match, man. It's like they're at a table and they're going to arm wrestle and say, my church is better. No, it's not. Yes, it is. My church is better. And they're, and they're like in a, in a fight. See, your real identity in Christ is hidden behind everything else. And what comes out is anger, sarcasm, Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. A great example in the Bible is King David. King David was married, right? But one day, there's a a lady, her name is Bathsheba, and she's hanging out on the the roof, you know, probably sunbathing, taking it easy, chilling out. David says, hmm, I got to have that lady. Because of their union, she conceived a child. Uh oh. David overcompensated. We got to cover it up now, man. How am I going to do this? I got to make it look like the real dad, you know, was involved in this. So what does he do? He goes and he gets Uriah out of battle, brings him back home, thinking, well, maybe he and his wife will hurry, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying, and 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 it's going to look like it. Well, guess what? Uriah comes back and says, you know what? I'm not going to be engaged with my wife because I've got got my warriors. I I don't want to live up the good life while they're over there battling. And David thought, oh, my gosh, am I in trouble now? Overcompensates. Send Uriah back to the front lines. And he eventually is killed. A person that demonstrates pride, he professes to be independent. He normally feels confident in how much he knows compared to how much you or how, much, how little you know. He's a person who keeps others at arm's length. So how do you become or how do you overcome this spirit or being identified as prideful? Very simple. we got to consider the reference point. What's the reference point? Again, I go back to the little speed bump in your life when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's this, that we were created in His image. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created human beings in His own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. He made nothing else in His image. The alligators don't look like him. The giraffes don't look like him. Right? That eight point buck and, you know, doesn't look like him. But we were created in his image. We were created to to literally think like him. Love people instead of being prideful. Maybe asking for forgiveness instead of letting that root in you and fester in you for years and years and years and that person dies and you have nothing but regrets for the rest of your life. That's pride. Share with you someone else that had to deal with pride and that was the Apostle Paul in First Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Right there is Pride. A blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. You see, Paul was educated, not at LSU or UL. He was educated at like Harvard, Princeton. Had the best teachers, had the best training. Hated the Christian world. Until one day, God got a hold of him. And look what it says. I was all of these, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, I believe that Paul's identity at some point in his life was discredited. Now, I didn't live with the man. You know, maybe it was a fear of failure. Maybe he was shamed at a young age very badly by someone in his family, maybe a parent. And it's a bad memory for him. I don't know why he became that way and so prideful, but something happened in his life. One day, one day, he's on the road just outside of Damascus. And a light from heaven, Scripture says a light from heaven, Knocked him down to the ground. He gets up like, whoa, dude, what was that? And all of a sudden he tries to open up his eyes and he can't because there's scales on his eyes. And he's like that for three days. I believe this, that for three days, God was saying, you're my son. I'm pleased with you. You were created in my image. Because when the scales came off, oh, my goodness, he wrote two thirds of the New Testament. He created you and you belong to him. Finally, the last temptation was in Matthew 4. We're continuing in verse 8. Next, the devil took him to the peak of every high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. I will give it to you all, he said, if you kneel and bow down and worship me. Jesus said, get out of here. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Point number three. When I know who I am, I will not be selfish. When I know who I am, I will not be selfish. Once again, we see Satan trying to discredit, take Jesus's identity away from him by trying to just simply let him enjoy what he was already going to enjoy. Hey, man, come with me, man, go, go way up here. All of this is yours. Jesus is like, get out of here. It's mine already. Satan was saying, look, man, go way up there. Serve yourself. Pamper yourself, man. Break out the lawn chair. Sit back and relax. Put some sandals on. I think if we would admit it, we're a little selfish too, aren't we? A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin, age five, and Ryan, age three. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. Their mother saw the opportunity for a great moral lesson. If Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. The older Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. Look, our society fuels this attitude, even at a young age, over a pancake. Becoming self-centered, self-seeking, self-worshiping. Even the apostles had a, a, an issue with this, because there's a couple of them. One day they're walking with Jesus, and they, they're like, Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest, man? Come on, tell her Who's the greatest? Man, they were jockeying to find out who was going to be the greatest. And then James and John... Their mom got into it as well with Jesus. One day, the mother of James and John, bless her little heart, only like a mama would do, walked up to Jesus, knelt right there by Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, man, I I need to ask you something. You know my boys, they're pretty good, aren't they? Right? I raised them good. You even chose them to be part of your team. So, you think they, they, they've kind of risen to the top of the 12, don't you think? So could one of them be on the left and the other be on the right? Dude, man, she was all wrapped up into being selfish. A lot of times we can be selfish and not even realize it. With our time, with, with our attention, with our energy, our resources, even our money. In fact, Paul gives us a little warning. He says in Philippians 2.3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. What Paul was saying here, that word, those words ambition and vain conceit, was, listen, don't jockey yourself to get the best position or the best seat in the house. Don't put yourself above everyone else. So how do we overcome... This identity of being selfish. I say it again. Consider the reference point. Again, it's that little speed bump in life. When you got saved, there was something very, very spectacular that happened that day. And I gotta share it to you. It's in Hebrews twelve two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, Jesus Christ went to the cross for you because you are the joy that was set before him. Amen. Listen, his body was so mangled and bruised and beaten. His own mother, it says in scripture, could not recognize him. Why did he do that? Because he knew that Satan was going to come and try to discredit your identity to try to get you off track and go through life not knowing who you are. But he came for you so that you would know who you are. Amen. Instead of looking out for number one, there was not one ounce of selfishness in Jesus. He came to heal. He came to serve you. He came to love you because you were the joy of why he endured so much. And, you know, I will say this, that Satan hates a confident believer. He hates someone who knows who they are in Christ. Jesus said, Satan, take your trash talk and get out of here. Get out of town, boy. Because my daddy is happy with me and he's coming after you. Yeah, that's right. He's coming after you. You you better get yourself out of town, boy. Because my daddy is happy with me. He loves me and I'm not going to fall into the trap of being performance driven. I'm not going to fall into the trap of being identified as prideful and I'm not going to fall into the trap of being selfish. I know Who I am. I want to conclude with this story. Every month, the youth group at River Road Church visited the Holcomb Manor, a local nursing home, to hold church services for the residents. Darrell, a reluctant youth group volunteer, did not like nursing homes. For a long time, he avoided the monthly services. But when a flu epidemic depleted the group of volunteers, Darryl agreed to help with next month's service as long as he didn't have to be part of the program. During the service, Daryl felt awkward and out of place. He leaned against the back wall between two residents in wheelchairs. Just as the service finished and Daryl was thinking about a quick exit, someone grabbed his hand. Startled, he looked down and saw a very old, frail man. In a wheelchair. What could Daryl do but hold the man's hand? The man's mouth hung open and his face held no expression. Daryl doubted whether he could even hear or see anything. As everyone began to leave, Daryl realized that he didn't want to leave the old man. Because Daryl had been left too many times in life. Caught someone off guard by his feelings, Daryl leaned over and whispered, "Uh, I'm sorry, sir, but I have to leave but I'll be back, I promise. Without warning, the man squeezed Daryl's hand and then let go. As Darrell's eyes filled with tears, he grabbed his stuff and started to leave. Inexplicably, he heard himself say to the old man, I love you. And he thought, where did that come from? Daryl returned the next month and the month after that. Each time it was the same, Daryl would stand in the back, Oliver would grab his hand, Daryl would say, I've got to leave, Oliver would squeeze it, and Daryl would say softly, I love you, Mr. Leek." As the months went on, about a week before the nursing home service, Daryl would find himself so excited because he knew it was about to come next week. He was so excited he wanted to be part of the service. On Daryl's sixth visit, the service started, but Oliver still hadn't been wheeled out. Daryl didn't feel too concerned at first because it often took the nurses a long time to wheel all the patients. But halfway into the service, Daryl became alarmed. He went to the head nurse. Um, I don't see Mr. Leak here today. Is he okay? The nurse asked Daryl to follow her and led him to room 27. Oliver lay in his bed, his eyes closed, his breathing uneven and labored. At 36 years of age, Daryl had never seen someone dying. But he knew that Oliver was near death. Slowly he walked to the side of the bed and grabbed Oliver's hand. When Oliver didn't respond, tears filled Daryl's eyes. He knew he might not ever see Oliver again. He had so much he wanted to say, but the words would not come out. He stayed with Oliver for about an hour, then the youth pastor walked in and gently interrupted to say, we have to leave. Daryl stood and squeezed Mr. Leak's hand for the last time. I'm sorry, Oliver. I have to go. I love you. As he unclasped his hand, he felt the squeeze. Mr. Leak had responded. He had squeezed Daryl's hand. The tears were unstoppable now and Daryl stumbled toward the door trying to regain his composure. A young woman was standing at the door and Daryl almost bumped into her. I'm sorry, he said. "I I didn't see you. It's okay. It's all right. I've been waiting to see you. I'm Oliver's granddaughter. He's dying, you know. Yes, I know. I wanted to meet you, she said. When the doctor said he was dying, I came immediately. We have always been very close. They said he couldn't talk, but he's been talking to me. Not much, but I know what he's saying. Last night he woke up. His eyes were bright and alert. He looked into my hands and said, please say goodbye to Jesus for me. And he laid back down and closed his eyes. He caught me off guard, and as soon as I gathered my composure, I whispered to him, Grandpa, I don't need to say goodbye to Jesus. You're going to be with him very soon, and you get to see him and say hello. Grandpa struggled to open his eyes again. This time, his face lit up with a smile, and he said as clearly as I'm talking to you, I know, but Jesus comes to see me every month, and he might not know. He closed his eyes and hasn't spoken since. I told the nurse what, nurse what he said, and she told me about you coming every month, holding Grandpa's hand. I wanted to thank you for him, for me. And, well, I've never thought of Jesus as being a chubby and bald guy, but I imagine that Jesus is very glad to have you mistaken for him. I know Grandpa is. Thank you. <laughs> Oliver Leak died peacefully the next morning. The youth pastor explained the transformation in Daryl this way. Daryl's identity had been marred early in life. Many hurts and struggles because his parents divorced when he was in fifth grade. He clammed up and made no friends. He became a loner, always longing for his father to say, I love you, son. I'm so proud of you. In high school, he attended a Christian youth camp and received Jesus as his savior. However, like many, the honeymoon stage didn't last long. And he began to divert back to his old behavior. Many reached out, but he never reached back. He showed up one day at youth service. And that night we couldn't understand why a 36-year-old man was in our youth service. God knew. He asked to help right away with the youth, but still remained insecure and to himself. Immediately following Mr. Oliver's funeral, Darrell asked if I had a few minutes. We pulled into a coffee shop and he proceeded to tell me what changed in him at that day in the nursing home. He leaned over the coffee shop table and said. That day in the nursing home. When Oliver squeezed my hand. God whispered to me, I love you, son, and I'm pleased with you. I never heard these words before many like daryl are going through or have gone through an identity crisis where we don't know who we are we don't know our purpose in life and we just stumble around because the enemy has discredited our identity And what happens when we get to that point like Daryl, we can't answer the question, who am I? And a lot of us simply don't believe what the scriptures say about us. Many of us have not gone back to the reference point of the day of salvation to understand what happened that day. And I'm here today to tell you that my assignment is to tell you it's more than just a speed bump. That reference point is a day for you to say, you know what? 2014 is going to be a little different for me because I have a brand new identity. That I'm not going to live in my past. I'm not going to live with the shame that I've had to deal with and all the struggles and the heartaches and and, and everything else that I've had to deal with. Because it tells us in Scripture... That I don't have to live that way anymore. That on that day when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, all heaven opened up to me. That I don't have to be performance driven. I don't have to be prideful. I don't have to be selfish. That I can be who Jesus created me to be. I told you up front that my assignment Or, what my assignment was. You have an assignment. And that is simply to go back to the reference point. Go back to the day of salvation. Get these scriptures and read them aloud. Because you have been identified with the King of Kings. And don't allow Satan to come in and tempt you and get you off track. When he comes in, get out of here. I'm not going to live in pride. I'm not going to live in all that junk of being performance and a perfectionist and overcompensating. I'm not going to live in that selfish type of atmosphere. I'm going to live how Jesus, how God created me to be. And I was created. I'm not junk. I'm not a disaster. Even though my parents may have not planned me, God did. And I am just going to stand firm and strong and confident because I know who I am. Please stand. <clears throat> now maybe, <clears throat> maybe you've been struggling. Maybe you've been misidentifying yourself, misdefining yourself based upon things that you do or maybe based upon things that have been done to you. But I'm here today to tell you that Christ came for you to identify you as a child of God. Not what you've become because of what somebody has said or spoken over you. But I just want you to bow your head right now. And if you would be honest with me and say, Rob, man, just who you read my email? I've been living that life of performance-driven. I've been I've been so misdefining myself. I don't even know who I am. If that is you, just simply raise your hand. I want to know who you are. Come on, be honest. Just simply raise your hand. If you need prayer, I want you to come down right now because we want to pray with you. It's okay to admit, listen, I was misidentifying myself, trying to master everything, trying to be a perfectionist. Until one day, you you, you know what changed my life? When it says that I was the joy before him, is that when Jesus was on the cross, they offered him gall, G-A-L-L, which was a narcotic. And what they did, if, if, if they crucified people, they would give you that to numb the pain. On that day, he refused it. Because he said, I'm taking your pain, Rob. And I'm telling you what, it, it, it rocked my boat. I don't care about knocking that over. I'll go knock it down again. I don't care what happens. I don't care where this pulpit winds up. Listen, I've had to learn. I know who I am. I'm a child of the Most High King. Amen? And there's no devil in hell that's going to come and steal. It's time. He's been a thief too long. And I've been hanging out too long at the cemetery. It's time to get out and get away and move forward with him. Amen. If that is you, if you're feeling that way, I just want you to come down. We're going to have some altar ministers to pray for you. Now, I want you to keep your eyes closed. Now, you may say, Rob, I have no clue. I haven't haven't experienced the reference point. I need Jesus in my life. If that is you, I want you to raise your hand. You say, Rob, I, I I need Jesus in me. I need Jesus. I need to go back to that reference point. Listen, if that is you, I just want you to come down after service because I want to pray with you. Jesus is here today to meet your need, amen? And there is no, there, there's no need that's too great for him. That's the cool thing. He's here to help you. He's here to say, you're my child and I'm pleased with you. Father, I pray over everyone in this auditorium as as we go forward, Lord, that we can walk away confidently with our head up saying, I'm stopping what the enemy has been trying to put on me. That I'm going to move forward because I know my reference point and that is the day of salvation because of what Jesus did for me. I have a new nature. I have an identity that I'm latching on to because you know what Jesus said? I love you proud of you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And there's nothing that's going to change that. Amen.